Well, good morning, everybody. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, uh, excited to get to preach to you uh, today. I've, Blake and I have been preaching more this year, um, which I think has been uh, a lot of fun and positive, and, you know, we all get pretty sick of Bryce, so it's good to mix things up a little bit. I'm kidding. Uh, you and I both know that uh, Bryce has been uh, a principal instrument in all of our spiritual growth for the past 10 years, and so um, we love him, and we are grateful um, for him and to give him a little bit of a breather uh, in the summertime. So uh, usually what we do on Sunday mornings is we preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, to get the whole context of what Scripture is telling us. Um, but then in the summer, usually, we do a sermon series that's more based on different topics. Um, and so this year, our um, summer sermon series is called Vintage Values. And so what we're doing is we're going through each week uh, a core value of our church. And each of our four core values is getting two sermons. Uh, and so first week, Bryce preached about um, thinking biblically. We think that every believer should think biblically and that, that the way that we see the world should be framed by the word of God. Uh, last week, uh, Tony uh, preached to us uh, about living missionally. When we live missionally, it, we are living and seeing all of our life as a mission field, as a, a, uh, an opportunity to share Christ with those around us with our words, with our deeds, with our entire lives. Uh, so we want to be people who think biblically, who live missionally. Today, um, I'll be talking about flourishing relationally through discipleship. We want, to, we want our relationships, particularly those within the church, to flourish, to be strong relationships. In a world where, uh, in, in, a, in a region of America, where a lot of people just show up at church, they're there, and then they leave, and they make no deeper connection than that. We want to push against that tide and have relationships that are strong with one another uh, for encouragement and exhortation and accountability. Um, uh, so we want to be people who think biblically, who live missionally, who flourish relationally, and who worship passionately. And next week, Blake is going to take the first sermon uh, in worshiping passionately. All of our lives uh, are... A place. Our entire life is a mission field. Our entire every moment of our lives is a moment of worship, not just our uh, Sunday morning gatherings or kind of more uh, typical religious activities. Our entire lives should be worship, and so Blake is going to uh, hit that for us next week. Um, so it's been a great series so far. We did this back in 2015, and I think it's good for all of us to have a refresher every now and then. Um, before we really dive in today, will you open up to Matthew chapter 4 with me? If you've got your Bible, or if you've got a Bible app, or if you have a, uh, anything that can Google or search on the internet on your phone, uh, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read a few verses from Matthew chapter 4 to get started. Um, I want to kind of get a picture in our heads. We're going to, most of our topical sermons are, are going to be a little more broad, um, kind of looking further back, st stepping back to kind of see the big picture of Scripture. Um, but I want to go ahead and get this picture in our heads. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And the verses will be up here if you don't, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. It says this, while walking by the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, that he is Jesus. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Let's pray together before we jump in. Lord, your word is good and true and unchanging. And as we study it today, as, as we try to take it in, Lord, help us to believe it and to obey it and to understand it as best we can. Uh, we pray that your spirit would guide us and uh, make clear the things that you want us to see and understand today. We pray that you would um, glorify yourself in our midst this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, like I said, sometimes our study of Scripture is we start reading through a book, like First Peter or the Gospel of John, and we kind of camp out bit by bit through the book and, and kind of take it in slowly so that we can get all the details. Now, when we do that, it's important that we, we take in these small details with the big picture of Scripture in mind. Other times when we study Scripture, it's good to take in the big picture with the details in mind, but not getting so caught up on all the little details, because um, scripture is both, every single word is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and all of those things, but also uh, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees, and when we step back, we can see storylines and um, thoughts, uh, themes that the Lord, ways that the Lord shows himself faithful throughout time and in different uh, ages and cultures and all of those things are important. And so today we're taking a little bit of a step back and looking at mainly the Gospels uh, to see how Jesus approached discipleship. Uh, we, want, we want to think about what discipleship is, how Jesus approached it, and what we can take away from that, how we should approach it as a result. One of the most known passages for evangelical Christians is the Great Commission at the very end of the book of Matthew. Uh, it's, uh, Jesus had risen from the dead by this point, and he had appeared to a whole bunch of people. He had defeated sin and death and, and all of that. And, but he tells his disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee where, unbeknownst to them, he's going to ascend into heaven. So they're all there gathered on this mountain. Uh, and in Matthew 28, 18, uh, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we have one of the chief missions of the church, to go and make disciples. As we make disciples, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. But what Jesus doesn't tell them to do here is how. He doesn't tell them how to do this. How do we make disciples? What even is a disciple as Jesus meant it? Where are our step-by-step instructions on how to do this? As with a lot of things, this is something scripture doesn't give us. There's no discipleship 101 in between the gospels and acts, right? The, the reason that Jesus didn't follow up the Great Commission with a step-by-step instruction uh, to the disciples is that they already knew how to make disciples, because Jesus had spent the last three years showing them. He had taught and he had lived with these guys for three years, and they knew what he meant. They were probably still a little bit flabbergasted. It was a whole lot to take in, but they knew what he meant because they had seen him do it, and he had done it to them. And so then he was sending them out into the world to do the same. And so um, today we're going to take a look at how Jesus modeled and taught discipleship to the 12 disciples and what it means for us as a church trying to follow his example. 
So before we get too deep into this, we have to ask a few questions. And the first question is, what is a disciple? That's our first point for today. What is a disciple? Generally speaking, a disciple is a follower or a student of a teacher or of a leader or a philosopher. Uh, Specifically, though, we're looking at, okay, what does a disciple of Jesus mean? Uh, And so David Platt said this. He said, biblically, to be a disciple of Jesus or to be a Christian is to trust and obey his leadership, to receive and enjoy his love, and to give your life making disciples of all nations. To trust and obey his leadership, to receive and enjoy his love, and to give your life making disciples of all nations. This is really very basic Christianity. But we live in a part of a world where being culturally Christian is still a thing. We give a nod to the man upstairs in our country songs. We have in God, in, in God we trust on our money. Um, we pray when things get really bad. We come to church on Easter most years. And, 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 and there's a, a sense in southern culture that that's all there is to being a Christian. It's, a, it's just a, a thing. You know, it's just, just like your granddaddy was a farmer. Your, you know, your grandfather on the other side was a preacher. So you're a Christian. And it's just kind of a thing. That's not in scripture. Right? That is, that's not a biblical concept. Being an obedient disciple of Jesus, being a faithful Christian is not something you can casually do. Uh, it's following Christ is not an add-on to your real life. It is your entire life or it's not. It's as simple as that. Um, the New Testament doesn't give any kind of example of anybody who could casually follow Jesus. And instead, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus called that being lukewarm and that it's good for nothing. Right? That's not something that Jesus endorses or that scripture teaches. That doesn't mean, we, we've, all, we've all had times when we were less faithful than others. Sometimes we were less faithful in very spectacular ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. But if, if we don't turn from that, it's a pretty good indicator that Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. If the, long, the long-term arc of our lives is not bending toward obedience to Christ, then we might believe that there's a God out there somewhere, but we're not a disciple of Jesus. We are not a Christian. The long-term arc of our lives should bend toward his will and not our own. When we consider who Jesus is, there's no room for lukewarmness. There's no room for cultural, casual, hey, Jesus, what's up? There's no room for that. Jesus is the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Scripture says that he is holy, holy, holy. All things were created through him and for him. In him we live and move and have our being. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He laid down his life for us and he took it up again of his own accord. He reigns now and forever and will return to judge the living and the dead. So there's no being meh about Jesus. Like, there's no, there's, there's no in-between here. He is your king or he is not. And if he is, then like Platt said, we will trust and obey his leadership. We will receive and enjoy his love, and we will give our lives making disciples of all nations. This is what the disciples in Scripture did. Following Christ changed everything about their lives. So that is what a disciple is, according to Scripture. Um, this is being a Christian. Some people, there's some crazy people out there who teach that there's like being a Christian and then you like reach this other tier where now you're a disciple. That's garbage. That's not what scripture says. Being a disciple, being a Christian, same thing, and it's high stakes. There's no casual um, doing this. So the next question we have to ask, point two, is what is discipleship? 
If that's what being a disciple means, to trust and obey Jesus' leadership, to receive and enjoy his love, and to give our lives, making disciples of all nations, what is discipleship? This word gets thrown around a lot, but it's actually not a word that's in Scripture. It doesn't appear in the Bible, but it, it usually means a couple of things when people are discussing it in the proper way. Um, it could refer to the act of evangelism, the ways that we help bring unbelievers into the fold. Uh, in this sense uh, of discipleship, it's the act of making new disciples, and that's very true. But it could also refer to the entire arc of the Christian life, coming to Christ, being baptized, being taught the commands of Christ. It's the long process of growth and sanctification. And the broader sense is mainly what we're getting into today. Because when Jesus saves us, we learn how to live as Christians in community. He saves us into community. The core value that this falls under for us is flourishing relationally. We are called as a church to obey the Great Commission together. And the last part of the Great Commission is the part that is often neglected. Teaching new believers, and old ones too, to observe all that Jesus commanded. Jesus didn't just tell the disciples to get as many people saved as possible. And often in evangelicalism, the focus has been on getting people to accept Christ. The long-term process of growth in discipleship falls by the wayside of trying to sell heaven to as many people as will buy it. That's not true discipleship. Really, it's, not, it's, not, it's incomplete discipleship. If we're truly living out the Great Commission, that we are evangelizing, we are baptizing, and we are teaching. And that teaching happens in the context of the local church. Uh, there's a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser, and he said that theology describes what we see when we are awake. And discipleship is about staying awake. Staying awake. He made the point that we often sleepwalk through life. Uh, and we don't look at our day-to-day -day circumstances uh, through the spiritual lens of the Bible. But as Christians, we're commanded over and over to be sober-minded, to be alert, awake, on guard, ready for action spiritually. This doesn't come naturally to us, and we must be taught. Christians, especially new Christians, need to be taught how to live. We must not be ignorant or forgetful of Christ's commands. So in the same way that every Christian is commanded to share the gospel and make new disciples, every Christian is also to help others grow spiritually and to seek spiritual growth personally. This way of life is never finished. You do it, and you do it, and you do it, and then you die. And then we'll be Jesus. It never ends. You are never done growing personally, and you're never to quit helping others grow. So when we say discipleship, that's what we mean. That's what a disciple is. That's what discipleship is. So the third point, the first three go really quick, by the way. I'm spending more time later on. Um, the third point is, why is discipleship important? Why is discipleship important? First off, it's important because Jesus commanded it, right? That's, that's the, the, the first thing we have to take from Scripture. Um, it's easy to try to understand Scripture first, Right? Like, we, we want to we wanna get it. And a lot of times you're not going to get it. We have to believe it first. And then the understanding can follow later. So Jesus commanded that this is important, and that's the most important reason. Um, he commanded both aspects of discipleship, the making of new disciples and then the continual teaching and growing. Uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it ab abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
We abide in Christ. We draw near to him. He draws near to us. And in the process, we grow and we bear much fruit. So discipleship is important because Jesus commanded it, but it's also important because we are in a spiritual battle. A few weeks ago, we finished our study of 1 Peter, and it included these words in chapter 5, uh, in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Prowls around like a roaring lion. Um, So we, in the past year, have uh, started, uh, I don't know what the word is, we have chickens, Right, we're, uh, I would say we're raising chickens, we're taking care of chickens, but somehow I feel like we're doing all those things wrong sometimes. Um, but So we have chickens, and a bobcat has been killing our chickens. This week, he got number five. Uh, and it's, we have tried so hard. Like we're, so since this started happening, we're on our guard, right? We know the hours that the thing prowls around and gets chickens, and it's in broad daylight. It's between like 11 and 2. That's his hunting hours. And so we've been, if we are not outside during that time, we lock the chickens up at that time. Um, And if we are out time, we have the gate shut and we're watching and we're paying attention. Um, We have set traps and tried to trap the bobcat. So far, we've gotten two raccoons, a stray cat, and one of our cats, (laughs) but not the bobcat. But we're trying. It has avoided our grasp um, but we've learned to be vigilant because we don't want to lose any more. Um, it feels like a losing battle, but it's not. Because if, if we pay attention and we are quick enough, we're going to outwit this thing. Because we, we're starting to understand how it works. This last time, we realized it got in in a different way. It came a different route than it has the last four times. And so now we're not just looking on one front, we're looking on two. We're paying attention because we know what's going to happen if we don't pay attention. Our spiritual enemy prowls around in much the same way. He's sneaky and smart and deadly. And often these attacks are personal attacks. They're tailored to our own unique tendencies, and it's very hard to resist. But it is resistible. Christ has defeated sin and death and Satan himself, and in Christ we have the power to repent of our sin daily and to resist spiritual attacks. But to resist, we have to be firm in our faith. We have to be growing in strength. Discipleship equips us for spiritual battle, both personally and culturally. There is a constant barrage from the world meant to erode our spiritual foundation and send us adrift on a sea of sin and confusion. These attacks might be the most dangerous because we don't realize that they're happening, right? There's the obvious thing where the bobcat comes in and tries to attack. This is sneakier and it's slower, we have to be on our guard guard to resist the enemy in the obvious ways and the subtle ways. It's often when we think we are right, when we think we are in the right place and we're, you know, we're honoring God. That's a lot of times when the enemy sneaks in for an attack because we kind of get comfortable in ourselves and we shouldn't be comfortable in ourselves. Yeah. And the idea that an attack is, is, can come at any time and often is happening at all times, is, it kind of makes you just want to like move into a monastery and like shut ourselves out from the world to try and stay safe. Um, but that's not what Jesus commanded for us. For most people, Jesus wants us to be in the world, to be uh, a light, to be a city on a hill. Uh, in, in John 17, Jesus is praying 
um, for his disciples. And he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We're supposed to be in the world, but we are supposed to resist the evil one. Not living in fear, but living in awareness. Being awake. We are to be sanctified in the truth, and his word is truth. So discipleship aims directly at this dynamic. It is a counterattack against the culture's discipleship. It is a counterattack against the enemy's personalized attacks on us. We have to learn how to properly think and live as Christians, and we have to teach people how to properly live and think as Christians. This is how we make our stand, and this is how we experience the abundant life that Jesus saved us to live. So that's the groundwork. We've laid, we've laid the groundwork. That's what a disciple is. That's what discipleship is, and that's why it is important. So how did Jesus approach discipleship? And that's where I started with the verses that we did uh, today. He, he called those first disciples. They were in the middle of, of fishing and mending their nets and things like that, and Jesus said, follow me. And they followed him, and that was the beginning of a, a physical and a spiritual journey for them. So how did Jesus do it? What can we learn from what Jesus did? Uh, the next few verses in Matthew chapter 4 kind of give us a glimpse of what life was like right after they went on the road with Jesus. So starting in verse 23 of Matthew 4, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So this is what the first disciples witnessed when they took part in, uh, this is what they took part in when they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And all of what I just read, that's directly followed by the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, so it was a pretty remarkable time. A lot was happening. And the disciples were present for all of this. But there was this kind of progression uh, in their lives. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. I don't think this is going to be on the screen. But there was this progression. Um, Jesus called the disciples. He shared his life with them. He taught them. He included them in his work, and then he sent them out to do the same. So he called them, he shared his life with them, he taught them, he included them in his work, and he sent them out to do the same. So let's break that down. The first part is pretty simple. He called them, and they followed. Jesus became the most important thing in life, their guiding force. They repented, and they believed, and they followed. And it was the beginning of a new life for all of them. He called them. And then he shared his life with them. One of the most important aspects of following Jesus for these guys was the fact that they were with Jesus. They were in his presence. They ate and slept and traveled and worked and worshipped with Jesus. They were with him in public and in private. All the big moments, all the small moments. Every miracle, every burp, every night spent sleeping on the, in the dirt somewhere. They were with him for all of it. And you really get to know a person when you live with them, right? I mean, if, 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 I think most of us have lived with other people. And, and it, 
I remember in college, like, I had friends that I was on great terms with, and it, it was nice to know them, and then we moved in together. We roomed together in a dorm, and it was like, oh, this is a whole different dynamic <laughs> than just us sharing classes together. Um, I still love all those guys, but I don't want to live with them anymore. Um, living with a person can sometimes be something that, like, turns you away from them, right? It can kind of drive a wedge in a friendship. Um, but in this case, that's not what happened. Um, they, the people around you are the ones that shape you and influence you the most, the people that you live with. And they lived with Jesus, so Jesus had this opportunity to shape and influence his disciples at the deepest level because they were all living together. And they got to see that this guy was the same guy in every situation, that he was who he said he was. So he called them, he shared his life with them, and he taught them. The disciples were present for nearly every instance of Jesus' public teaching, from the Sermon on the Mount to the synagogues in every town to the temple in Jerusalem. They heard everything. But Jesus also taught them privately. On more than one occasion, Jesus and his disciples uh, would leave a big gathering where he had been teaching, and one of the disciples would be like, what did you mean by that, by that parable? Like, I saw, I saw a meme. It was uh, the disciples talking to Jesus, and it's Michael Scott from the office saying, explain this to me like I'm a five-year-old, right? <laughs> and so they, they, they asked these questions. What did you mean by that? Or when is all that supposed to happen? And so Jesus would keep teaching them. He would clarify what he meant. Some things he would leave up in the air, but he would clarify what he meant. And he would teach them privately, and he would correct them privately, and they would go deeper and deeper. His teaching completely reframed how they understood the reality of their day-to-day lives. So he called them, he shared his life with them, he taught them, and he included them in his work. Which is saying a lot. If you live with these people and you see what they're like and you still include them in the work that you know they're going to mess up, I think that says a lot about how Jesus approached discipleship and how he approached ministry. Sometimes uh, the disciples were just doing simple crowd control uh, when things got crazy while Jesus was healing or teaching, and sometimes they'd overdo the crowd control, like when they were like, no, kids, get away, and Jesus was like, let the kids come. Um, Sometimes they were just steering the boat, or they were picking up 12 baskets full of bread, but after a while, he gave them bigger opportunities. He sent his disciples out to proclaim the coming kingdom on more than one occasion, to heal the sick, to cast out demons in his name. And then when they came back, they kind of had a debrief about how it went. This hands-on experience and apprenticeship was life-changing for them. And it was teaching them the way that they should live their lives from now on. So he called them, he shared his life with them, he taught them, he included them in his work. And then, ultimately, he sent them out, finally, to do the same thing. He sent them out to do the same. That's the Great Commission that we read earlier. Jesus called them and lived with them and taught them and included them and sent them out to build the kingdom by proclaiming the gospel with their whole lives and for the rest of their lives, to make disciples of all nations. And they did. And then what happened? The disciples that they discipled kept on discipling, on and on and on. And that's how we are here, right? The the reason that any of us know Jesus is because somebody discipled the person who told us about Jesus. And somebody discipled them, and somebody discipled them. And it's been going on for 2,000 years, and that is mind-blowing. That the, the word of God and that the truth of the gospel has been preserved and has gone on. I don't think that there's, this has been argued by other people in better ways. There's, there's, that's one of the most convincing proofs for the gospel. Because if all of this was a sham, it would have died out, right? 
Cults generally don't last that long. And this has been going on for 2,000 years because it's true and because discipleship works. Missionary and author Elliot Clark described Jesus' model of discipleship um, as having three kind of interwoven dimensions, instruction, investment, and imitation. He said this, too often Western missionary methods following many Western churches tend to treat ministry as primarily informational and transactional. But it's not enough to teach content or to transfer responsibility. We also need to model, mentor, and be with each other. This happens most naturally in the context of the local church and through hospitality, where believers fulfill these responsibilities with one another. In the past couple centuries, a trend in evangelicalism has focused on getting as many people saved as possible. Evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Christians saw and experienced the awe-inspiring feeling of a tent revival or a Billy Graham crusade. And to them, they looked like, that looked like success spiritually. And so the, the idea came to be, let's replicate that in our local churches. And that will mean that we are successful. I recently saw a presentation from uh, a man who runs some sort of missionary organization in Africa. And he started his whole presentation by saying, we've led over 900,000 people to Christ in Africa. And I was immediately skeptical. And the reason for that is, okay, let's say that that's, how, how, first of all, how do you measure that? How do you measure that you've led 900,000 people to Christ? Let's say that that's 10% true. That's 90,000 people. What did you do then? You live in Mississippi. You don't live in Africa, which means you go over there on mission trips and you preach to millions of people, and then they come to Christ. Well, who, who, what, did that, what happened next? Who taught them how to live as a Christian? Who brought them along and showed them what it means to live as a Christian? Uh, this is a, a very giant example of some of these problematic questions, but um, it's true in many evangelical churches today. The focus becomes how many people come forward during the invitation, or how many people accepted Jesus at VBS, or how many people were spontaneously baptized on the youth mission trip. The numbers become primary markers of spiritual success, and that is problematic to say the least. The numbers are not primary indicators of spiritual success. Making disciples is not about seeing how many people we can get into heaven. There is no scoreboard. And if there was a scoreboard, if that's how we're keeping score, then Satan wins. Because Jesus said that the gate is straight, that the, the way is narrow, and there will be few people who find it. That's not how we keep score in the kingdom of God. Evangelism is only one part of discipleship. Making disciples is about life change. It's about teaching and modeling and mentoring and being with one another in the context of the local church. This is what Jesus modeled in the way that he made disciples. Um, So I want to encourage you, just for the purpose of understanding this better, is to skim through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, and John, and stop and read every interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, whether it's one-on-one or a group. And pay attention to that, just to kind of get a big picture of what Jesus did. Because you won't see Jesus saying, all right, how many, how many people did I heal today? How many, how many people believed? How many, no, he doesn't do any of that. Read the Gospels and see what, how Jesus interacted with his disciples, because that's what we're trying to mimic. So he led them in a way of life, a way of life that was meant to be replicated 
in others. Um, and that's what we are striving to imitate here within our church. Uh, and so that leads us to our last point today. And the last question is, how does vintage approach discipleship? If this is what it means to be a disciple and to pursue discipleship, and this is, if this is how Jesus approached discipleship, how should we do that as a church? One of our core values, like I said, is that we should be flourishing relationally. And on a base level, this means loving your neighbor as yourself, both within the church and without. It means having a reputation for basic Christ-like kindness and respect toward others. These types of flourishing relationships will lead us to opportunities to share the gospel, which is living missionally, uh, as well as it will lead us to personal spiritual growth, which will intensify our worshiping passionately. One of the things that I love about our, our core values as a church is that they're not neat little separate boxes. They all run together. You know, flourishing relationally will lead us to sharing the gospel, which is living missionally. And all of this is meant to be an act of worship, which is worship passionately. And all of that is shaped by the way that we think, and we're supposed to be thinking biblically. We intend discipleship to occur within our flourishing relationships, because that is what Jesus modeled for us. Every church approaches discipleship a little differently, and there's more than one way to faithfully make disciples. But our conviction is this. Every aspect of life is meant to be worship, and as an extension, every aspect of life is an occasion for discipleship to happen. So public, formal worship gatherings um, like these, where we're all present, um, is part of it. Um, but Jesus didn't compartmentalize his influence on his disciples, and we believe the same thing. It's not just something that pastors do. It's not something that one ministry team does. Every part of church life forms us. And every partner of this church is meant to be involved in the work of discipling others and growing in their own discipleship. In the same way that Jesus walked with his disciples every day, everywhere for three years, the process of discipleship is long and slow and purposeful, and we have to be patient with it. It is, like, it is, it is the process of sanctification, of being sanctified together. Bryce says all the time that what we are doing is a, running a marathon, not a sprint. And that is true. So we've intentionally built three circles of discipleship into our church's DNA. Like I said, the different churches do it different ways, but this is how we've chosen to do it for our church. Discipleship is not limited to these circles, but they're a starting place, uh, a starting place that's mirrored from the way that Jesus discipled his disciples. So the first uh, circle and the largest circle is our Sunday morning gatherings. This, here, us, together. Um, Sunday morning gatherings are a lot of things, but uh, they are a significant part of our personal growth as Christians and of our training newer and younger believers how to live. On Sunday mornings, we're all together, and often we have guests. We're live streaming on the Facebook page, and it's similar. This is similar to the times when Jesus would teach large crowds. It was his biggest circle, uh, like the time he got in a little boat and kind of pushed back from the shore a little bit so that he could project to everybody that was gathered on the shore. Or when he was in a synagogue or he was at the temple or preaching to the 5,000 before he fed them. It wasn't a very intimate uh, experience, but it was profoundly impactful on everybody present. And we intend Sunday morning gatherings to, be, uh, to mirror this in, in what is preached and in the way that we preach it. Um, we, and not just the preaching, but every. The, what we sing and how we sing, the prayers that we pray, uh, taking communion every week, the entire liturgy, everything that we do is meant to mirror that sort of thing. 
it shapes us. And so that's our biggest circle of discipleship. It's, it's very important, um, but it is, it's kind of this one thing. Inside of that, we have another circle. The second circle is our missional community gatherings. These are small groups uh, that meet in homes throughout the week. Um, it depends on on the, the missional community, but usually it's between 10 to 20 people, depending on how many kids, and there's a lot of kids around here, so some of them uh, get to be lively. Um, but so this smaller circle of missional community groups that meet in homes throughout the week is meant to mirror the intimacy that Jesus had with his 12 disciples, right? So it's not the, the big crowds where anybody could be there, and Jesus is kind of speaking in more general terms. It, these missional communities are meant to cultivate a stronger more personal relationships. Um, the disciples ate and traveled and slept in the same places and ministered together with Jesus. They developed shared life experience with one another. And that is really special. And that's something that we shoot for um, in our missional communities. In our smaller groups, meeting in homes, we eat and we chat and we hang out together. That's part of it. We are in each other's homes. We share our burdens and our joys. We study scripture together. We discuss how the scripture is impacting us. We learn together. We lift each other up. We hold each other accountable. We pray together. And so these deeper relationships are ones that you can't develop on Sunday mornings. We're only here for maybe two hours. Let's say if we get here early, everybody's here for two hours. But we're all here together. We can't have deep, meaningful experiences with everybody in the room every time we gather on Sundays. And so missional communities are an opportunity for those sorts of relationships to happen. And those sorts of relationships are vitally important. Like I said, Christianity is not showing up for church on Sunday and then leaving and not thinking about it again until your alarm goes off on Sunday morning. That's not what the church is called to be. And so missional communities are the, the second uh, circle in here. The smallest circle uh, is what we call gospel circles. It's a term that we came up with, but it's not an idea that we made up. Jesus loved all of his disciples, but he selected Peter, James, and John for a deeper sort of relationship. They were his confidants. They were kind of his right-hand men. They're the only disciples that went with him. Um, when Jairus, uh, he was a, a guy, and his daughter was sick, and they, they came, he came to Jesus and said, please come heal my daughter. And he was like, okay, I will. And then she died before Jesus could get there, and he went and raised her from the dead. The only disciples he took with him uh, were Peter, James, and John. Uh, Peter, James, and John were the only ones present on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus for who he is. They saw his glory, and they saw Moses and Elijah too. There was only three of them there. Um, Peter, James, and John were the, the ones that were closest to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a very special relationship where Jesus shared more of himself with them than he did with the rest of the disciples. And that's what we intend to mirror with our gospel circles. Gospel circles are groups of two to four people who meet regularly together to cultivate spiritual maturity and transformation by applying the gospel together, encouraging one another and holding each other accountable on a very personal level. The goal is to create and to deepen relationships that lead us to worship passionately and think biblically and flourish relationally and live missionally. Gospel circles usually meet every other week or so uh, with three things in mind, up in and out. Um, the up is our relationship with God. We study scripture together in gospel circles, and so we talk about our relationship with God and how God is shaping us through his word, the, the ways that he's convicting us, the things that he's teaching us. The in is our relationships with other people. How are our relationships uh, with our spouses, with our kids, with our extended family, with the people that we work with? 
um, how are we treating people in those relationships and how are they treating us. Uh, we discuss those things in Gospel Circle and we encourage and exhort each other. And then the out are uh, our opportunities for ministry, the ways that we can share and show the gospel to those around us. And so we lift each other up specifically. You know, we say, you know, Philip over here that I met at the gas station, we had a really great spiritual talk, and I'm going to go get gas there again in a couple days, and I'm going to try to talk to him again. And so the people in uh, the gospel circle are actively praying for people who need Jesus and praying for opportunities that we have to share the gospel. So besides the command from Scripture that we meet together regularly as a church, none of this is mandated by God. Uh, Scripture allows for differences in culture and personalities to shape the way that local churches approach discipleship. But we've chosen this way because we want to build continuing holistic discipleship into our DNA as a church. We're grateful for people who visit on Sunday mornings and we welcome anybody who comes, but we don't just want people to visit on Sunday mornings. We want to go deep with people. We want to go deep. We want them to go deep with the Lord. Our church mission statement says that we want to cultivate authentic disciples of Jesus. And what we mean is that we want to cultivate a gospel-saturated way of life. Submission to the truth of Scripture should permeate every corner of our lives, and that's what we're shooting for. Discipleship is not limited to the three circles that we have. It happens in the home. Uh, Tony talked about that some last week. Uh, between husbands and wives, between parents and children. Discipleship happens as church members serve together, whether you're on the cleaning team or you help with the grounds or you work in the nursery or we, you, we, we work together for the good of the body and the proclamation of the gospel and we grow in discipleship in each of those situations. It happens when we are with each other, with Christ as our center. Every part of church life contributes to the making and shaping of disciples, and we implemented these three circles, uh, the, the three circles approach for that reason. We want deepening discipleship to be unavoidable if you are a part of this church. We don't want it to be something that we can skirt around and, no, because that, this is what we're here for. This is basic Christianity. It's one of the reasons that we call, we call the church vintage churches because we're trying to hone in on these essential things. And we're not doing it perfectly, and no church ever has done it perfectly, but these are really important to us. And deepening discipleship should be unavoidable for anybody who comes to our church. I uh, am a novice gardener, and even saying that out loud makes me kind of have imposter syndrome because I know what my rose garden looks like right now. Um, my rose garden looks so bad that Lexi was moving some bricks and she just threw them in a pile of weeds, but there was a rose bush in the middle of the weeds. She didn't know because the weeds were so tall. Um, uh, so there's a, a few ways that I'm learning that you can combat weeds. Um, in cottage-style gardens, which is kind of what I'm shooting for, but I haven't gotten there yet, there's a few ways to do things. You could uh, plant all your bushes or your plants or whatever and then get some of that uh, the, the, the black fabric stuff. And you put that down around your plants, and then you put mulch on top of it, and it keeps stuff from growing up. The problem, though, is that, like, it keeps anything else from growing up. You, only, you plant the few things that you got, and then nothing else grows, and that's it. Um, another thing you could do is you could plant your stuff, even put down the black fabric, and then every time you see weeds shooting up, you go spray it with Roundup, right? And it kills the weeds. The problem is that it could also kill the things that you want to grow, um, and it poisons the soil. It's not good for the soil. So as I understand it, and as I'm trying to figure out uh, with cottage gardening, the, the, the best way to combat weeds is to plant more of what you want to grow. You plant things closely together, tightly packed, and what happens is these beautiful plants that you want and enjoy start growing, and it doesn't leave any room for the weeds to grow. 
And if a weed does grow, it's very obvious, and you just get in there and you, you pluck it out. But the good things kind of choke out all the weeds. That's discipleship. That's what we're shooting for with the, the way that we approach discipleship as a church. And, and the, that's the way we want our minds and our spirits to be formed. We want to plant so many good things in our garden that the weeds of the world struggle to find a place to grow. And when they do start to grow, they stick out like a sore thumb and are removed. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a gospel circle with somebody and somebody sees one of these weeds growing up, it's going to be like, hey, this is really obvious, but you may not realize uh, you're being terrible here. You need to change this. You need to repent. So this is what happens when we practice spiritual disciplines personally, when we're reading scripture and we're praying. Um, and when we are pursuing flourishing Christian relationships in the church, we're planting vibrant, beautiful habits and relationships that over time can choke out the weeds of sin that take root in us. So what do we take away from this broad discussion of discipleship? Uh, here's, a, here's a few things um, to note and remember. One is that we should get familiar with the way that Jesus made disciples. Read the gospel, pay attention to the way that he interacted with his disciples. The things that he taught, right? We spend a lot of time on the things that he taught, and we should. But what I mean here is look at the way that he taught and, and, and look at the way that he interacted with his disciples. Get familiar with the way that Jesus made disciples. Two, get serious about your personal growth as a Christian. We, uh, we, we studied the book of Ecclesiastes last year, I think. We were there for a long time. Uh, and we, we read a lot about Solomon, and we saw what happened to him. He was the wisest man in the world. He was content, he was close to God, and then he wasn't. Believers cannot lose our salvation, but we can drift away from intimacy with God, and we can ruin a lot of things in the process. If we get stagnant spiritually, we're not just stagnant. We're wasting away, right? If you don't use muscles, you lose muscles, and, and our spiritual lives are much the same way. We should be seeking the face of God, practicing those simple spiritual disciplines of studying scripture and praying and sharing in the life of the church. At the very least, be a part of the three circles. That's going to keep us from getting too far off track. If we are involved in the three circles, uh, we might still mess up. We will still mess up, but, but we're going to have some, some bumpers on the edges of the lane to keep us on track. When our personal pursuit of the Lord connects with flourishing Christian relationships, our garden will bloom beyond what we can imagine. So we need to get serious about our personal growth as Christians. Three, we need to get involved in making and shaping disciples. Share the good news of Jesus with those in your life. And when people believe, help them learn how to live as Christians. Share your life with others the way that Jesus did. Now, you may be new to the faith or may not feel like you have anything to contribute, and that's okay. Start small and ask for help. It is possible to be discipled by others while you are making disciples. Uh, get involved in a gospel circle with someone who is further down the road with you and someone who is newer than the, to the faith than you are. Uh, ask a more seasoned believer if you can tag along with them as they disciple others. Just being present for another family's uh, nightly devotion can be impactful. Seek it out is the point. Seek out opportunities to make and shape disciples. And then the last one, number four, is we should get in the habit of nourishing our relationships within the church. The song that we sang earlier says this, Beloved, we are one in Christ who nourishes and cherishes the bride he brought from death to life so that she thrives and flourishes. The Lord wants our church to flourish. So we need to intentionally build and tend our relationships with one another. 
Cultivate the kind of relationships that will choke out the weeds. Build space into your life for other people. Invite other people alongside you and go alongside them. May we imitate Jesus over and over and over and over until we are with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, being a disciple is not an easy road, and it's not something that we're going to do perfectly. Uh, But help us not to see that as a deterrent from following you. Help us to see the supreme value of knowing you and being known by you. Lord, may that be the driving force in our lives. And because we see that as true, Lord, help us to obey. Help us to go and to make disciples and to teach them. Help us to be willing to be taught and to be held accountable, to develop the kind of relationships that you had with your disciples and that your disciples had with their disciples. Lord, help us to be a church that is believing your word and obeying your word and doing it together. And when we mess up, when we do it imperfectly, Lord, um, sanctify us. Show us the things that we should change. Help us to stay on track. Lord, may you bless the efforts that we put into discipleship. May we grow and grow and grow until you bring us home. We love you and we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.